Mike Tapper and Mark Jolliker have joined The Antidote for a talk about the life cycle of worship music. It's good to have you here with us. Thanks for having us. This is great. I suppose before we jump into this, could I have each of you fill us in about your ministry roles and how the two of you connected? Sure, yeah. So, um, funnily enough, Dave, you and I have chatted before, although I don't know that I did much chatting, but uh, I was in a, in a band that um, sat across from the microphone from you, I don't know, a decade ago, probably, at uh, the CGMAs uh, out in Calgary. And so, um, part of my story is that I was a Christian kind of traveling musician, and I, I, I did some worship ministry, but I also just did a lot of kind of performance stuff. And so, that was a, a big chunk of my life. But that then led to, for the last six years, after another kind of hiatus, I've been a local worship pastor at a church in Moncton, New Brunswick, Canada, which is where about five years ago, myself and Dr. Michael Tapper, we had the, the brief honor of serving on that same staff for just kind of one year together. That's kind of where our paths collided. And that's also kind of what I've been doing and, and why I have a bit of a stake, I guess you could say, in this in this research for the last little while. And Dave, for me, um, I would fashion myself, I'm not sure if this term actually exists, but I'm a pracademic, Dave. I love the local church and I love the academy. So I find most of my life, I've sort of had my feet in, in both worlds. And so a lot of the questions that have driven projects like the one that we're talking about here today is driven by a deep, deep love that I have to see and serve the church, to see the church thrive. And also to figure out how to do that in a way that honors academic research and what that looks like. So I'm currently at Southern Wesleyan University, just outside of Clemson, South Carolina. And so they're letting a Canadian all the way down here in South Carolina chair a religion department at a Christian school. And uh, it has really met my desires as it relates to loving and, and being engaged in the local church and preparing others for, for ministry. So little bit about uh, Mike Tapper. Mark, back to you, because as you mentioned, we met in 2011 at the Covenant Awards in Calgary, and you guys were so accommodating because you and the band ferried me all over the city to all the different venues that we had to go to. So as you mentioned, at that point, you were fronting the silent. Mm -hmm. And of course, tonight we're going to be here to talk about worship music. Mm -hmm. But with the silent, you actually did record the worshipful God of heaven and earth. <laughs> but maybe I should really get you to define what is a worship song. Right. Well, you know, lest we take the rest of the evening on such an esoteric question, why don't we say, I can help you define what a corporate worship song is, which is really kind of what our research is about, which is about songs that are able to be used by a couple of people in a worship service setting to be able to kind of focus their prayers um, to God and to be able to kind of hear from God. So that's that's kind of what we all think of, I think, in different ways when we think of corporate worship songs, right? And so a song that you hear in the radio can definitely be a song that is used to worship God, absolutely. And I think a lot of us have had spiritual experiences that at Bob Dylan concerts or at U2 concerts or, um, you know, while staring out at the ocean on a lovely day. But there's just something about the way that certain songs kind of are framed and then the essential context of where they're used will make them a kind of a corporate worship song. I've always thought of church worship songs as being typically smooth paced with easy to follow lyrics. But here, Mark, you're the musician. 
could worship music also come out of the rock or even metal genres? Yeah, I mean, and it does, right? Like, I don't really know, Dave, what your church experience is like, and so I don't know where you go now or whether you even grew up in the church. We could interview you if we wanted to, but um, I do know that, like, just from my own personal experience, you know, I grew up starting attending an evangelical church when I was about seven years old, and now that I'm uh, in my fifth decade, I can just tell you that the the way that the church music sounds now certainly does not sound the way that it did back then, right? Like the aesthetics of it have changed dramatically. It, it happened progressively, and so sometimes it's easy to ignore the fact that it that it did change. But if you were to able to juxtapose what a, a church worship song sounded like 20 years ago versus what one sounds like now, um, even in rel- relatively conservative churches, I think you're going to say, wow, I mean, it, it is kind of influenced by rock music in some respects. But I mean, even without kind of narrowing in on one, one kind of like aesthetic, like I know, for example, of a church in in uh, the Detroit, Michigan area that is like a, it's a hip hop church. And so like they use rap music as corporate worship music so they they're able to kind of have sections where they were you know the the congregation will rap along and it'll have the same kind of lyrical content in some respects as you would think about for a worship song Um, but the context for them is that they're actually able to use it corporately and so at the end of the day people are able to push boundaries in terms of what's what's corporate and what's not and so i mean i have not been to like a death metal church um I have seen death metal shows and I've seen Christian death metal shows and Christians at death metal shows. And so I guess theoretically, if you had enough of them together (laughs) and if that's what was happening, and especially if it was on a Sunday morning in a church context, uh, you know, lo and behold, maybe you've got death metal worship. And I have been to a metal church in Toronto, not death metal. (laughs) Mike is feeling left out. So let's bring you back into this. You and Mark got together to study the life cycle of worship songs. What was it that caused you to dive into that project? Yeah, if I can be honest, Dave, part of it was just wanting to work with a group of great people. Some of the research that I've done in the past has been done as a lone soldier, kind of plodding through research. That was what uh, doctoral work was like. And I decided back here, what, 10 or 12 years ago that I wanted to do research together with people. So when we decided to get together here about two or three years ago for this project, I knew that Mark was uh, an absolutely amazing worship pastor. We were gifted with a pretty impressive data set of all the music that has been sung over the last 30 years in churches that are associated with CCLI. And uh, with this amazing data set, and uh, with Mark's generous willingness to, to uh, oblige by this question of what is the life cycles of the songs that we're singing over the past 25 years, we had some hunches, Dave, about what those life cycles were looking like here in the contemporary context. And we wanted to compare them with recent decades. And uh, yeah, we were pretty intrigued with what we found. I think there's a lot of people that have no idea what CCLI is. Can you explain it? Uh, Yeah, so CCLI is a church copyright licensing company. So, I mean, when you listen to songs on the radio or when you buy a, I was going to say a CD because that's how old I am. When you you acquire music in any way, shape or form and money is exchanged, uh, for the most part, the songwriters 
or you know the publishers or whoever holds the rights to the songs that they they get some of that money that's how people in the music industry in some respects live uh, and so it's actually no different with church music um, the people own those copyrights for a period of time and so CCLI is essentially the largest global company that manages those copyrights uh, on behalf of the the artists and the publishers and whatnot. And so they're essentially a bridge between churches and the uh, the songwriters themselves. And of course, songwriting now is different from how it used to be years ago. Often it was just a single songwriter. Now it always seems to be a group of people that are actually creating a song. Yeah, uh, not to say that there were not group writings happening in the past. I mean, the Nashville Songroom is not exactly a new phenomenon, um, but it certainly does seem as though there's a lot more of that now than there was in the past, in particular with the worship genre. So uh, Mike and I were, uh, first of all, a couple of fantastic data analysts who were a part of this with us as well, uh, Lisa Corbin and uh, Charles and Dennis. I mean, without them, the math would still be sitting on a, an Excel spreadsheet, lifeless. <laughs> they resuscitated and somebody who's actually kind of an original in some respects from the calvary chapel days and if you know if you know what i mean then you know um andrea hunter was able to kind of help us get some insight into some of these things that we weren't necessarily super privy to um but you're right dave that back in the day the impression kind of was that a lot of these worship songs came from essentially like a single place a single voice in some respects a quiet place right like maybe this was somebody writing this song uh, in their worship time and now what it looks like on paper, because of the sheer number of writers and a lot of these songs, is that it looks like it's emanating from a room. Now, does that mean that the entire project is emanating from a room? So somebody's showing up at nine o'clock in the morning, punching the clock and getting together with their five hit makers and making this song? Or does it mean that the germ of this song, in some respects, is still happening in the same way, but that it's being brought into this room for sort of like a like a woodshedding, like making what was at one point in time a, a bit of a rough uh, idea, a much more polished idea, one that's more palatable and going to make it <laughs> in long term for another, for all intents and purposes. That's really not clear. And actually part of the research that we're looking at now for part two of this project kind of does involve that a little bit, but we're not really able to speak too much to that at this point in time. All we can tell you with scientific accuracy is that in the overwhelming majority of North American churches, songs are staying a lot less time than they used to. You mentioned 30 years of songs. That could have included, I don't know, thousands or maybe even tens of thousands of songs. You couldn't have looked at all of them. So how did you choose which songs to focus on? Yeah, what a great question, Dave. So we had top 100 lists from CCLI. They collect data from audited churches. Sounds like a funny uh, term, but they audit churches to determine which songs that they're singing the most. And then they compile all the data together and they publish in six-month increments the top 100 songs that are being sung the most. That's the data set that we utilized all the way back to the late 80s, early 90s when CCLI was emerging. So we took all of the songs that were in those top 100 lists, we compiled them together. Obviously, there was some redundancy because songs, you know, when they come into the church as it relates to popularity, they stay for a while. Um, some of them leave quickly. Some of them uh, stick around. You would think that we would be combing through thousands and thousands of songs, but essentially where we landed as far as a song corpus for this study was 199 songs. 
that actually had a legitimate rise in the church. And when I say rise, um, the idea is that they landed somewhere on a top 100 list. How they rise in a church, there typically is a plateau, like a typical growth curve, and then there's a decline. So this rise and plateau and decline was where our where our interest was for the study. 200 songs. Okay, well, something I've been thinking about since I've looked at what you've been doing is that we all know that we're living in a soundbite culture. People just read the news headlines on their phones. You know, we only seem to want the basics. Do you think any of that could tie into the limited life of a worship song? Um, the answer is yes, because the way you framed it is, could it? <laughs> and so if the question is, could it, then the answer is absolutely. Um, the, the really, at the end of the day, Dave, people definitely want to know, hey, why might this be the case? So if you can demonstrably show that songs are are zooming in and zooming out of churches faster today than they were 25 and 30 years ago. Um, as long as the answer to who cares is them, then the next question will be, well, why is this the case? And so it's obviously quite complicated. And so we try to lump a bunch of different causal factors together in a little kind of three-pronged acronym tick, like a tic-tac-toe or like tic-tac, depending upon how bad your breath might be that day. But uh, <laughs> essentially, so technology industry and culture. Uh, and so the one that you're kind of hinting towards, I think would be that latter one culture, right? The, everything in our world is a, a kind of a turnover world in some respects. And so things, we kind of want what's new and we want what's what's fast. Uh, and so uh, generally speaking, you could say that that might be part of the, the motivating factor behind it. I'm less inclined to think that that's a strong motivator um, but I do think that it could at least be playing a part in how people who are programming our, our church services are at least feeling some sort of a cross pressure, if not from their congregation, uh, then at least from the broader culture in which they live. So that's the culture part of it. But you've got technology and industry. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'll let Mike talk about the industry and I'll kind of start, I'll start off with, with technology. I mean, you and I are chatting right now uh, via the wonders of the internet. And so 11 years ago, when we met, uh, I don't know if you're using the internet to uh, record interviews with people across the world, but I do know that you are now. Uh, and so even to just think about the last decade, about just how much things have changed, and then to know that that happened the decade prior and the decade prior, I mean, it's kind of a no-brainer to say that technology has changed significantly in the last 25 or 30 years. And that's obviously impacted the way that churches run. And obviously then, therefore, the way that church music runs, you know, you have to know your, your audience. I don't know ultimately who's listening, but if anybody's like, yeah, you know, our, I serve on our church, we use loops for our Sunday morning songs, or, um, you know, we use ProPresenter for our lyrics. Like, that's not time immemorial, right? Like, 5, 10, 15 years ago, the overwhelming majority of churches would never have considered using these things, right? We, we used to use overhead projector <laughs> for our lyrics, oh, yeah, right? That's right. And even that was incredible, but that is a such a deprecated technology. And yet at the time, it was a mind-blowing technology that could make it so that theoretically, that very morning, you could write the lyrics of a song out and then have those lyrics be one that everybody could look at at the same time on the screen and sing along. No longer were we beholden to a hymnal, like a printed piece of paper or a book that would sit in the back of your pew or be distributed 
you when you walked into the church service like that one piece of technology revolutionized the ability to do new songs fast and that's just one you know piece of of all these other kind of technology let alone the distribution model that technology is now able to give to us and the distribution model uh kind of feeds into the industry model yeah um as it relates to the industry i mean we've seen such a significant change here over the last three decades with contemporary worship music industry a multi-billion dollar industry that morphs and connects quite closely with contemporary christian music as well um you know, there's essentially, there's some big entities in the industry right now that are driving a lot of the market in and around contemporary worship music. We won't necessarily name them, but some of these entities might immediately come to mind. And the way they go about the um, publishing the music that they publish, that in and of itself has changed a lot. And the intensity of that has changed a lot particularly as it relates to the publication of the songs and when they actually land in, in the churches. One of the things that we evaluated sort of as a little bit of a, an aside in this project was we looked at the actual publication date of songs and when they actually hit these top 100 CCLI charts in the churches and a phenomenon that we really notice, and it's tied to industry, I think, that these songs are hitting churches a lot quicker than they did before. And so industry-wise, we have some of the, the big contemporary worship music leaders, they're publishing songs, and within months, Dave, they're actually landing in our churches. That's changed a lot over the last couple decades. It used to be that some of these songs, they had close to a four or five-year gestation period before they actually even entered into our local churches. So so that in and of itself is interesting to us. Um, we think that there's some pretty significant implications to that as well. Mark also suggested, too, how the actual contributors uh, have changed, the lists have changed. And I mean, we don't have to go too, too deeply into a discussion about industry to talk about how uh, record labels and publishing companies have, uh, have really changed pretty significantly here in the last 20 years. Speaking about that industry aspect of it and how the songs are created, is that actually making worship music more generic? You have a formula to follow. I, man, I'm, I'm reticent to say that it's making it more generic. I can't think of music being more generic than the kinds of books that I've seen in a lot of churches. <laughs> that that <laughs> one melody was used for you know not only five or six verses of a single hymn but for alternate hymns uh like i don't think it's a, a new phenomenon that we might be having um generic use for worship so that's kind of like just first impression like i don't think that's exactly a new thing um i don't know necessarily what you might mean when you say generic uh like there's kind of two things going on at the same time right now which is fascinating and hard to kind of disentangle so like Yes, it does seem as though because this has become a, a, just a huge, huge industry, uh, kind of what you're implying is that you can start to hack the system in some respects and go, this is what's being rewarded, and therefore let's put more output like that. And yet at the same time, the world is becoming more global, and the worship industry is becoming more global. And so we're no longer just the sort of like 
you know, North American juggernaut church that's like outputting our culture to everywhere else, we're also getting feedback from these places. And so like you're seeing South American influences, you're seeing African influences in the North American worship industry. And so um, depending upon what songs you're you're listening to, we're getting a really, really solid, like here's what seems to be happening across the board in the, in the North American church. And yet we also are noticing that there are more and more regional pockets that are happening at the same time. And so even though there might be like a macro songbook, there seems to be like there's more and more micro songbooks that are happening everywhere because of the sheer volume of worship that's coming. And so I guess, Dave, it's a bit of a rambly way of saying it's conceivable that, yes, this could be making what a lot of people are experiencing for their worship music as being, you know, quote unquote, more generic. Contrary to maybe what the headline of our article might be saying, I actually don't think everybody's having the exact same experience when it comes to what they're getting for worship music. At the church I attend, the worship leader chooses songs to line up with the speaker's message. Its release date has really nothing to do with that choice. So I guess, Mark, you'd know about this because you handle worship at your church. Does age or popularity of a song change your choices? Oh, man. It does for me, um, but it, that's because of the... Because you're at a mega church. It's it's larger. Honestly, Dave, it's, it's no external pressure in terms of like my employer, nor really, honestly, from my congregation. It's just like, I landed in a cultural milieu and like I kind of I read the the lay of the land and I was kind of like I think this is the way we're going and I I think I'm I'm comfortable to kind of keep going there. So I've definitely adjusted the ship a little bit but not significantly. Everybody has to have their own kind of like guiding light in terms of how they do that, which is actually part of the just the terrible wonderful mess of evangelicalism these days, which is just like we have no <laughs> there's no guidebook, right? Like, oh man, somebody tell me what to do. Um so yeah, I often put it this way. Sometimes there's songs that are not new enough or old enough for me to want to introduce them. So like if a song is like six years old, I'm like, why would I want to introduce this song to a con unless it was like the only song that does what I needed to do? I'm like, why would I want to introduce this song when I could do something that's either like really, really fresh, something that's really on the cutting edge, or do something that I actually fight to do all the time, which is go something that is really, really old, right? Like something that actually kind of lets people know that the church is not just 15 years old, but actually has an ancient history. I kind of like to rock both of those sides of the boat. And so the stuff that kind of rides in the middle, it's just less exciting for me. Now, does that mean that I will not do it? No, like here I am to worship. You know, if all of a sudden it's like, we really need to talk about what it would be like to kind of strip back all of the music and just focus on this one thing. I mean, I don't know of any other song so far that has done that as well. We haven't done that song in the last six years, but if that was something that needed to be said for Sunday, we would do it. You do let the content be your your primary motivator, but you have to be honest with yourself sometimes and say, there's an awful lot of songs that say an awful lot of the same thing. So uh, you don't have to be like, well, there's a song that I used to sing 10 years ago and I like it a lot. That's not necessarily going to be the number one motivator for me to make sure that that's the song that we sing on Sunday. It's like getting tired of listening to the Eagles when the Eagles were popular. <laughs> and then it's like, I never want to hear it again. <laughs> Mike, back to you for a minute. You talk about the life cycle of a song. What are we actually talking about in figures 30 years ago and what it is currently? 
Yeah, I mean, we could get into some of the weeds with the, the numbers, but for your listeners' sake, songs are essentially, Dave, rising three times faster and declining three times faster than they did 20 years ago. So what does that mean? It's uh, essentially a shift from a song that might have had like a 10 to an 11 year cycle to um, songs today that at best are plus or minus, I should say, three years. So we're looking at about a three-year cycle for a song that enters into the church and then leaves the church. We're also finding too, Dave, that the most popular songs that are entering into the churches, they tend to enter at a higher number in the top 100. So there's, I think there's some some things to think about there. And then too, and we've alluded to this a little bit, songs are arriving on those CCLI charts closer to the publication date, uh, like four times faster. So where 20 years ago, some songs took like five years. These days, some of the songs that we're singing, um, most of them are arriving in less than a year from their actual publication date. That's going to make the songwriter happy. <laughs> that means they could actually have chicken for dinner instead of a pizza. <laughs> yep. Then have you plans to publish these results? Yeah, well, we've been really pleased, Dave, with the initial interest in the in the study in Canada. Uh, we published here about a month or so ago in Faith Today. It was published as a cover story in uh, one of Canada's Christian magazines in the United States. Um, here where I am, Christianity Today picked up the study back in their, their December edition and just recently the full study, which was the actual original plan, the full study has been published by Worship Leader magazine. So if any of your listeners are actually interested in, in locating the study, it's under the title Worship at the Speed of Sound, Worship Leader magazine. Really? Because I am calling this show the life and death of worship. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like that one too. Which essentially is what we're talking about. Uh, that's good. I like that. Maybe I should have you sum this up from the data you've compiled. Were you looking at changing how we use worship music? Or is it geared towards opening up a discussion about it? Uh, yeah, so I mean, at the end of the day, it's just data. And the thing is, nobody cares about data. Data sits lifeless on a page until you talk about it and start to ask questions about it. But what we really wanted to do was really just bring forth this observation and to let people see it. Uh, the conversation that will come out of that will be different for everybody. So some people are going to say, that's great. That's good news that the church is turning over their songs faster, right? Because, uh, you know, the psalmist says, sing a, sing a new song unto the Lord. So, the, I mean, you know, check that box. We've, we've done it. And then there's going to be some other people who are going to look at the data and they're going to say, see, I knew it. You know, everything in our culture is ephemeral and the church is just following suit. And, uh, you know, everything's going to hell in a handbasket. And so it, it's, it's potential that people are going to have their, their biases confirmed on either side of, of the spectrum. At the very least, we wanted to show empirically that some of the suspicions that a lot of people that we've, we've had anecdotal conversations with over the last number of years uh, are correct. You are not crazy. Songs are coming in and out of your church faster than they used to. And then people like you, Dave, um, will have to then have that conversation and spread it around and, and kind of chew on it and then say, well, if that's the case, then 
what do we want to do about it? I can see silver linings to the cloud. Um, and yet, nonetheless, I kind of find like maybe there could be some rain coming as well. And so we just want people to kind of go into this with their eyes open and be able to discern, I guess, the decisions that they're making. The Antidote has been here with Mark Jolliker and Mike Tapper. Thanks so much for meeting with us. Our pleasure. Thanks.